For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, now I'm going to do uh, the part if I can, take a shot at it, which is being sponsored by our good friend Dove Hirsch, the Zechonishmas' grandfather. He's the one who's always trying to get me to do a Baruch Bear Leibowitz uh, one of these days, but I don't want to do it now. Um, but I'll say a few words about the the, the parsha before I run off to Mincha. Um, so thank you, Dovers, for the uh, sponsorship. And uh, here's the point. You know, we, we're, we're concluding the Joseph story. I mean, duh, everybody knows that. Uh, I don't know if you ever considered it from this angle. <clears throat> By the time you get to this parsha, Yosef, who has shalit al arts, Yosef is running the show. Uh, and he's so powerful that Yaakov bowed down to him, as we all know. Talibid and the Sagid ladies. You know, every fox has his day. And uh, and Yosef's even able to get permission from Pharaoh to go to, Jew- to bury his father outside of Israel and then make a VIP funeral out of it, as we all know. So this is based on a, ri- uh, on a record of accomplishment. It's not that they liked the way Yosef looked. He made himself useful to them in an incredible way. He saved them from the famine, and so on and so forth. Now, when you read through these parshas, especially the end of last week's parsha and then this week's parsha, you see that Yosef displayed quite a remarkable skill in administration. Uh, to put together an entire bureaucracy, and to move the population around to build new cities, and to move the food here and there, and then to have the food strictly rationed, which was absolutely necessary, under the circumstances, you and I know, we just went through Corona over here, and the government was all over itself with the mask instructions and not instructions, and most people didn't listen. And, you know, it was the opposite. It was something like a Chinese fire drill. And so the result was uh, you had a very strong imbalance in how the public health uh, directives were operating. And as a result, a lot of people who wore masks still got the stuff anyway for one reason or the other. And all I know is that the United States, of course, is not pharaonic Egypt, so they didn't have that kind of power. That is true. But um wasn't so successful in organizing the national effort vis-a-vis the corona. Now, in the time of Yosef, he was able to convince Pyro that he needs absolute powers, dictatorial powers, which Pharaoh gives him, and then he used them not to feather his own nest or to walk around and tell everybody, you know, kiss my feet and so forth, but to then undertake measures which show a lot of chachma, okay? Which show a lot of chachma. Divide the country up, as I said before, organize the rationing system, uh, when, figure out what to do, as in the end, just before Vayichi, when the peasants run out of money, and so forth, and introduce some kind of a modified slave system where the peasants get something also, and, you know, all that, and, and uh, placate the clergy. I mean, Yosef was quite amazing. And uh, and this is a guy who never went to college. And uh, someone with no formal training. When we last encountered him, he was a nar. Which the Chazal say, he was taka nar, you know? Always looking himself in the mirror, like I say, like a Romanian cop. And, uh, you know, playing with the hair and all the rest of it. And not too smart in people skills, which is why the brothers wanted to kill him. If we give it a little bit smarter, he wouldn't have, uh, you know shot his mouth off and say, you're all going to bow down to me one day. You can think what you want, but you don't bring it out in the in, in, in the in the words. 
And yet, this same guy ends up with these incredible abilities. Now, where do you get them from? You know, how did, a, how did a, a shepherd boy, even the son of Yaakov Avinu, let's say he had skills in being a shepherd or a businessman, how did he become to the point where he can run a Gansa Malucha? Now, if you want to be a Jewish chauvinist, you say, any yeshiva guy can do anything, you know. But that's ridiculous. So where did it come from? You understand? Where did it come from? I don't know if you ever, if you ever thought about this. I mentioned this in Shul the other day. Uh, the story of Yosef, of course, is one of Hashkacha Pratis, divine providence. Although in the Middle Ages, there were arguments about whether divine providence applies to all. Uh, so in other words, when I blow my nose, is that already divinely mandated by God? Or I scratch the back of my ear or something like that? Or do you say that's part of just, uh, you know, Teva, which God made, of course, which runs its own rules. And divine providence manifests itself in something extreme. However, all agreed, Rambam included, that when it comes to a, a superior person, let's say, for example, a tzaddik or something like that, so then you talk have Hashkacha Pratis. Uh, the story of Yosef is one big story of Hashkacha Pratis. But I don't know if you realize the full dimensions of it. because I never thought about it until this year, to tell you the truth. Uh, because where did Yosef pick up the education to do this? I think I mentioned in the past that I remember seeing, I used to have a book and I don't, I, th I think I maybe lost it or something like that. It was my wife's on the Parsha, like from the 60s or something. And uh, it was from Eretz but it was in English. And they had this article there by this, uh, or, or referenced an article, by this German guy, I forget his name, um, who was an important official in the Prussian administration in Germany before Hitler, up to Hitler. And he was an important guy in the First World War. And in the First World War, Germany was fighting against the British and the French and Americans, all the rest of us. They're under a blockade. And therefore, the Germans had to figure out how to run the country. And, you know, um, and, and, uh, maximize the, the whatever food was there and ration it in the most intelligent way possible. And they did actually manage to survive for four years before, you know, before, before the food situation collapsed. So, um, which is a famous feat of organization. Notice the Jews pulled the Germans through the First World War. This is famous Walter Rathenau and uh, people like that. And this guy who wrote this article was, a, was an Orthodox Jew you know, Tarm Derkhard's type, very educated and so forth. And some, excuse me, some of the rose in the, in the Prussian bureaucracy and the German bureaucracy. Therefore, during the First World War, he had a very important role to play in terms of the distribution of resources. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. To run a war requires, of course, the military stuff, but also requires the, the civilian stuff. One of the most interesting um, books about World War II Shoot, I can't remember the name. Came out in the last 10 years. I think it was called The Washington War or something like that, where a guy did a study. I got in the library. Uh, five, six years? I don't remember how long ago. Uh, which which he did. How did the American economy adjust to the Second World War? And to tell you the truth, there's a couple of Jews. I forget the guy's name. Some Russian Jewish uh, professor at Columbia or something like that. And he figured out the economic formula how to allocate everything so that the army gets what it needs and the civilians get what they need. It wasn't push it at all. Uh, I remember there's a whole bunch of Jews involved in this. Robert Nathan is the name that comes to mind. And it was the opposite of easy. 
um, because, you know, you can't starve the civilian population. On the other hand, the army needs what it needs. The Navy needs what it needs. And, uh, and America during Second World War was feeding and supplying the rest of the allies around the world. So it was an amazing logistics feat. So Yosef in his day did something along those lines, mutatis mutandis. And the question is, where did he pick it up? Now, he didn't get it in Yaakov's house, so where did he get it? And I say again, don't give me one of these lines, all the Chachmas in the Gemara and all that. Like, really, where did he get it? Now, um, if you think it through, Yosef got, I would say, because we're told bits and pieces of his stories, so any part, he's to, he's, any bits and pieces that the Torah shares with us must be important, that you see this in the course of, first of all, the fact that ever since he got a slave and ended up in Egypt, he was always around VIPs. First, he became not a slave, Stamazite to some, uh, you know, peasants in the Velterine, but to Rava Tabachim Potiphar, Sri's Paro Parat Tabachim. He was already connected as a servant with one of the prime ministers or big officials in Pharaoh's Egypt. And eventually he rose, as we all know, to the position, as he says to Potiphar's wife, that your husband entrusts everything in this house except for you into my hands. Which means that Yosef learned on the job in Potiphar's house, first of all, running the Potiphar estate little by little. So he started out small, and then he learned some ropes here and learned some ropes there, and then he rose a little bit higher, and then he was in charge of this, and later he was in charge of the books and the accounts, and then the import and the export, until he rose to be the prime minister in uh, in Potiphar's household. And when that didn't... So in other words... He got basic skills in what we would call today administration uh, on the job training. Now, did Yosef make mistakes as a slave rising in the ranks? He probably did. That's where he made the mistakes. Get it? You know, there's no such thing as learning without trial and error, not in the real world. And uh, the only thing is like this. Do you make your trial and error early on? So you, you learn what works and what doesn't work, and then you can apply it in larger situations. Or do you wait till you get to the larger situation when you screw up over there has mammoth consequences. You don't want that. So in the case of Yosef, uh, not only did he learn, uh, you know, people skills, uh, not 100% people skills because, you know, he was subjected by Potiphar's wife, all the rest of it. But, you know, by the time that's over, it's a learning experience. He knew, stay away from Asia's Potiphar types. But also he learns how to run the Potiphar establishment. Then he ends up in jail. But I've said many times, what is jail in the old days? Until the late 18th century, uh, there was no such thing as jail as we understand it today in which the punishment for the crime is the time spent in jail, which is the way the system is now. So that, let's say a guy holds up a store and he gets caught and convicted. The jail time will probably, I'm just making it up, five years in jail, six years in jail. So what is the actual punishment? Your confinement within the jail. And the idea is, if you spend five years of your life, or five months, whatever it is, uh, behind bars, so to speak, that will teach you your lesson. That is how you will pay um, for your crime, you'll atone for your crime, by being deprived of your freedom to move around. Not that it will actually do anything to you, because there's no torture nowadays. However, that results in your overcrowded uh, prisons. The prisons becoming places not for rehabilitation, but adraba to learning how to do the crime from others, and uh, all kind of other very bad social phenomenon, of which there are 100 movies, novels, and books, and things like that, about the terrible stuff that goes on in the prison. Uh, 
Very often the inmates talk around the, the, the place as we know. It's not a joke. Really, it's like that. So, this modern method didn't exist before like the 1780s or 90s. Uh, you can look up the Marquis de Beccaria, right? Who was one of the people in the uh, Enlightenment. And uh, he was a penal reformer. You know, uh, here it is, Beccaria, B-E-C-C-A-R-I-A. Cesare Beccaria. And where did he live? Ooh. Yeah, exactly. 1738, 1794. It's mom is what I said. Right? And uh, and as and he wrote his book on crimes and punishments, which condemned torture and the death penalty. Okay? So in other words, he's the guy that started the new thinking in penology and penal reform and things of that nature. Uh, I get it. But that means that there was no such thing long ago that if you did a crime, you spend time in jail to atone for the crime. Even in England, where they had the debtor's prisons, it wasn't shot you're paying, you know, for a crime of not paying. It's we keep you in jail until you pay or your friends or family pay. The only time you ever had it. So in other words, I'm sure I've spoken about this before. In other words, once upon a time, if you did a crime. Oh, hold on for a second. I just got interrupted. The, um, the point is that uh, if Yosef ended up in, in, in a prison, it wasn't in a place where people were sent to spend time in prison as punishment for their, for, for their uh, misdeeds. Uh, but rather, uh, in the old days, prison was where they kept somebody until the trial and the punishment. So let's say, for example, you did something wrong. They might arrest you, put you in jail until you have the trial. And then once the trial is over, they will give you malchus or chop off your hand or burn you a little bit. I mean, there's a whole wide variety of tortures they could do on you. But once they do the, the punishment and the torture, then you go home. So let's say somebody did something very bad. Oh, they might burn both your hands off. I don't know. You know, they were pretty rough, right? They might, uh, you know, chop off your ears. Anything's possible. But then you go home. Now, in the Torah, we don't have those kind of tortures, but you do have, you have Demalchus, which can be pretty rough. And in Midraboni, Amakas Martis, which has no limit on it, that can almost be rough. But then you go home. You understand? You did your zakh, you did your sin, the punishment so and so, and then it happened, and now you go home. Uh, so, the only people in the pre modern times who for whom they spent long time in jail with political prisoners. When somebody did a political crime, the king, the government, for whatever reason, may decide to keep them on ice. Even for long periods of time. Remember that book by Alexander Dumas, The Man in the Iron Mask, and you could stay there for the rest of your life, for example. But it's for political reasons, uh, not as a punishment for a particular crime. And many, many people throughout history were in jail and jail and jail. And then political situation changed, and then they were out of jail. If you want a biblical example, Yehoiachin, the king of Yehuda, if you'll remember at the end of the book of Malachim, or is it Divrayamim, where Nebuchadnezzar uh, imprisoned him, that's the first round. Yehoiachin, not the Yehob, and he was in dungeon, and he was in jail. And then later on, years years later, Nebuchadnezzar died, and Nebuchadnezzar's successor, it says, Evel Merodach, decided for political reasons, to release him from jail. And then he actually had a good life. So he spent a couple decades in jail, which was a bummer. And then he didn't, you see. 
It was all politics. And similarly, the story of the butler and the baker in the Joseph story, they were in jail as long as they were in jail. And then eventually, as you know, one was pardoned and the other one was killed. They didn't spend the time in jail. So Yosef was sent as a result of the incident with Potiphar. And mind you, he did the right thing with Aisha's Potiphar. That's why he's a Yosef Atzadik. So he didn't get punished by Hashem with something worse. He got punished something better. How do you get punished something better if you go to a jail? Why didn't you have the story... Why did the story go like this? That Potiphar says to his wife, I know you're a floozy. I don't trust you. I trust him. And he beats her up. That would be the way I would write the movie. That'd be a good movie, right? You know, boy, lie, or every, every, what's Sachik big? And, and Potiphar says, baloney, you know? And he beats her up. This is Egypt, after all. And he says, the Yosef, I give you a promotion or something like that. That's the way the story should have read. No, he was sent to Makoma Shirasi Mel Chasirim. He was sent to a prison which by definition was a prison for VIPs. And so Yosef served them, as we know from the butler and baker story, and he hung around them. So what was our hero doing as he moved from one VIP to the other? Here's a former minister of defense under Pharaoh, and here's a former foreign minister, and here's a guy who was a treasury secretary, and here's a guy who was in charge of the roads and the uh, and the uh, you know canals, and so on and so forth, the internal revenue. Yosef was sucking it all in, get it? That was his, that was his uh, what do you call it? place to learn all the skills of the government. Because just as we saw in the butler and baker, the Torah only tells us the story of the butler and the baker, because that led to his rise. But he did it also, like I said before, with the guy who was in charge of, uh, you know what I mean, uh, public health and all the other officials in the government. And Yosef would engage them in conversation because he knew how to schmooze. You can see that from the butler and baker story. And he would say, what did you do wrong? Oh, the Pharaoh was was angry at me because I didn't build the road right. So Taka, tell me, how do you build roads? Oh, first you get this, then you do that. I made a mistake of doing such and such. I should have done such and such. Meanwhile, Yosef was like registering, ka-ching. He talked to a military guy. Why are you in jail? I made a wrong mistake in the battle. I should have turned left. I should have turned right. Oh, tell me how the battle works. You get what I'm saying. So in other words, he turned the prison into a school, which a lot of people in history have done, you know, without going through names. A lot of famous historical figures picked up a lot in jail, uh, which they used after they got out of jail. And Yosef is, is tucking in there. And here he picked up from, not the butler and the baker necessarily, but from the guy in charge of the food and the guy in charge of the uh, weather and the guy in charge of the Nile River stuff. And uh, from all of them, he came out with a great deal of skills, uh, personnel management and this sort of thing. Ad kedekacht, and when Yosef is called the Pharaoh in the beginning of the case. Not only does he interpret the dream, but he gives him advice right away. Right? And Paro says, Wow, wow, this is not a regular slave. It's not regular, even though he says, He ain't simply some Jewish boy over here, you know, who's like a, who, who sold rags, <laughs> you know, who, who, who sold, uh, you know, used cars. Uh, this guy's got a lot of vision and energy. And uh, he picked it up in that school. Uh, somebody came to show this morning. Ellie Feldman came and told me, I mentioned this the other day, and he said, uh, you know, that it's sort of me to connect me to this is a literary analysis. The brother said, Hamolok Timlech Aleinu, we're going to send you to Egypt. Ha! In Egypt, that's where you learn to be, Moloch Timlech Aleinu. Because he went to a, a, a prison, where you learned how to run a malucha. And then he was able to employ these skills 
in how he ran the economy of Egypt with such success. So in those, you turn uh, crushed lemons into lemonade, as they say, you know, yeah, you know, bad chicken, chicken salad, whatever the expression is. Uh, and this is this is just very uh, profound about uh, about uh, Yosef. They thought that they were frustrating him, like it says in today's parsha in in, in Vayichi. Atem chashav tem alai Hashem chashav alatovo. So that can mean a lot of things. But one of the things is the very thing you did to me to mess me over is the thing to help me, and not only that helped you in the long run, because if I hadn't picked up these skills, I would never rise to be viceroy of Egypt. I would never be in a position to support you in the famine. And then think about this. I would have been a dumb guy working in the salt mines. The famine would have hit Egypt. Egypt would have screwed over royally because they wouldn't have been ready for the famine. You'd have mass starvation in Egypt. And what would happen to Canaan? They would starve to death in Canaan. Because they heard, yes, Shebrim and Mitzrayim. So the Rav hit Canaan. You see, the brothers probably wouldn't have figured, because they don't know what we know when we read the story. They wouldn't have realized, oh, we killed ourselves by getting rid of Yosef. You understand? If we hadn't left Yosef alone, he would have you know, maybe been able to save us. They didn't understand that. By the time the story is over, when you get to Pasha Bayaki, they understand this, because they can do what I just did, which is walk it backwards. And when you walk it backwards, you see, oh, because we sold Yosef into slavery, and he ended up by Potiphar, and the Potiphar ended up in the Makamashurim, and then Yosef picked up the skills. And the, number one, it led to the butler, uh, um, you know, reminding the king after two years. But it also led to him being in a position to do something about the famine, which did hit Mitzrayim. I'm sorry, which did hit Canaan. Forget Mitzrayim. It did hit Canaan. So if you think it's true, you have sort of like a tale of unity in the sense that. I may not like you today, but I may need you tomorrow. That's what it seems to me. That's what comes out from the whole story. I don't like you today, but I, I'll need you tomorrow. When they say finally, you know, and all that, he can say to them, you said, well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, because you threw me out, you know, I ended up going to Melech school, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was a jail. It was a school of hard knocks. Uh, but if not for that, you wouldn't be here. You'd all be dead. He would have perished in the in, in, in the famine. So uh the kind of dovetails, you know, with with the thing theme of last week with the unity versus the disunity and all the rest of it. But uh I could be if this was making a sermon, which it's not, you could uh always say, you see, misfortune is always a uh it can be turned into a good fortune, and it's how you spin it. I just don't like to do that because it sounds all glib. I I can tell you from personal family background. My father, who was born in 1900, U.S. at 1900, uh, was in Minsk. And then, when he was 1920, age of 19 or age of 20, I don't remember exactly what, because a civil war was raging in that part of the world, because Minsk is, as you know, today, capital of Belarus, and that time that whole area was being fought over, like Dr. Zhivago, you know, with one army after another. The Polish army came in, the Ukrainian army came in, the Belarusian army came in, the Lithuanian army came in, the Latvian army, the communist army, and back and forth. And everybody got drafted all the time and fighting and blood and, and, and all over the place. And at one point, uh, so my father ran away from Minsk and he ran to Lithuania, to Vilna, which is, I don't know, 100 miles away, something like that. I don't know exactly how far it is. Let me see. Yep, it's 114 miles. So uh, think about it, 114 miles. 
uh, not the end of the world, but it was going through army. And the point is, at that time, it was the middle of war, and the refugees all over the place, and life was disgusting. And he had to sleep on the side of the roads, and on the grass, and you're dirty beyond belief, and you're covered with lice, and you're starving, and the only thing is, when you're 19 years old, you're indestructible, get it? If you have good health, nothing can knock you down. And, you know, if necessary, you can eat cockroaches if it's necessary. Uh, and I'm serious. And, you know, do all kind of stuff like that, which a normal person would be so grossed out that they just go, ugh. And, uh, and he did it, as did others. And it was a school of hard knocks, which, in, which, which 20 years later, when Hitler came in, and, uh, you know, the Jews were in the ghetto in uh, Shavel in Lithuania, uh, the only way you could survive is you know how to scrounge and uh, sneak here and steal there and eat this and that. And even when he was in concentration camp, he ate all kind of junk. Uh, but most Jews, as probably most American Jews, I imagine, would say, I guess, I can't do that, I'd rather die. It's, it's so gross. It's so disgusting. It's beyond belief. I can't handle it. And I do understand that. You know, I do understand that. However, um... There's consequences, then you die. I think I've said before that uh, my father uh, was married to one of two sisters, and he had a brother-in-law whose name was Fisher back in Lithuania, Chavo. And whereas my father came up through the school of hard knocks because he'd been a refugee for a while in the, you know, in the aftermath of the First World War, as I just described. Uh, so by contrast, his brother-in-law... Guy Fisher was born to a nice family and always lived in a very refined way in Shavel, like we say, upper middle class and that sort of thing. And he married a rich girl and so on and so forth. So they both were in the they both were in the ghetto and they both were in the, in the concentration camp. And, uh, and my father told me when he came, I don't know, was the Stutthof or was the Dachau, um, and they saw the horrific conditions over there. And you can imagine, maybe you can't imagine actually, how terrible it was. And this guy was like, you know, freaking out beyond belief. Of course, naturally. And we're talking about the Holocaust over here. And um, and he basically died after a day. And he didn't starve to death in a day, but he checked out. The The reality was so bad, uh, you know, so bad, that basically, even though he wasn't starving or anything, this, he, he was dead in the morning. And I can understand it. You know, he sort of like resigned from the living from the human race. Uh, now, we in America, thank God, you usually can't imagine something along those lines, but maybe you can. And uh, he had not had the benefit of being in the base of Surum, you know, being in the school of hard knocks and having to live a very extremely rough and brutal life for a while. Uh, in the case of my father, the time to do it is when you're 19, you know, when you're a peak of your strength. Uh, but uh, But he saw that, you know, like I said before, this bug can be eaten. This grass can be eaten. You can you can actually live with a covered with lice for a while. You know, I mean, these are disgusting things. But sometimes people, you know, it's necessary to do this in order to survive. A lot of people who are regular middle class bourgeois, for the nicest of reasons, because they were refined, edelah people, couldn't handle that, and they just said, well, you know, we're we're we're, we're done, we're gone. And uh, there were, I I think you may know this. X number of Jews, not a few, who, when they came to the concentration camps, committed suicide. They threw themselves in the electric wire. They did all kind of stuff like this. It's, uh, you know, 
and, and I'm not making fun of them, the opposite. I'm saying I, I get it. Uh, because uh, they didn't have a bad experience which they were able to exploit and, and they use later for constructive purposes. The story of Yosef Atzadik is the story of that, of having a bunch of bad experiences but using them, uh, you know, uh, uh, making the best of it and using them and then later on using them in a uh, different situation to triumph over adversity. I think that's just very interesting in the Parsha. And when you say Vayechid, there's all kind of Vayechid. There's Vayechid living in good times, Vayechid living in bad times. So we see both sides of the, of the, the story in uh, this week's Parsha. Anyway, as I said before, I want to thank Dove Hirsch. Uh, and uh, with that, I'm not going to be doing it later in the week. Uh, with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.